Good morning. My name is Zach. I'm the pastor of Comedian Global Outreach. And so one of the things that I get to do is get to have the kind of like the main relationship point of contact between Rolling Hills and our missionaries. And so today we get to have one of those missionaries with us. It's Andrea Lockwood. And for those of you guys that maybe recognize the last name Lockwood, uh, her grandparents, uh, Larry and Jackie, have been here a long time. So either way, Andre, you mind telling us real quickly just a little bit about you know, your ministry and then I know you got a video or something. Yeah, so hi everyone. Um, I'm serving with Action International Ministries in the Philippines and I've been there for two years and will continue on for as long as God has me there. I love visuals and I'd like to show you what our work is, so that's what the video is for. and this is Krista and Murphy, and we're the founders of Brand New Day Ministry in the Philippines. Welcome to our main ministry center. So come take a look. So this is our boys shelter, but besides just being a home for kids, it's also our base of operations for our other ministries, like planning for our outreaches and our other community programs that we have to help kids stay in school. Right now there are more kids on the street than ever, and they need food, they need shelter, they need education, they need medical care, and so that's why we go to the streets to build relationships with them and to hopefully inspire them to have a better life. shelter is also serving as a school because the local schools here are not in session yet since the pandemic so the kids have homework modules and online classes that they do. The girls come here to the boys house and we kind of have school time between 9 and 2 every day. So this is our kitchen area. We provide the kids a meal three times a day. So it's like in a normal home. We, we feed them and some are starving, of course, when they, the first time they arrive. So uh, we're trying to give them a, a really healthy food so they can be healthy. Here are our boys' bedrooms. Right now we have two bedrooms with four bunk beds in each room, so we can house eight boys in this house. And then we have a house down the street that we're renting for the girls, but we can only have four girls there. And so right now, our capacity is only for 12 kids. And so for the past few years, God's really been giving us a vision and a passion to grow our ministry, grow our reach, and really be able to help more kids. And so 
We bought a piece of land nearby here and we are currently putting together our plans and layouts to be able to one day um, start construction and be able to help many, many more kids get off the street and have hope for a new life. reaching out to street children and empowering them through education, shelter, and family restoration. Man, I, I love that video. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the things I, I love about my job and I love about what we get to do as Rolling Hills is we get to partner with people that are doing these things around the world that are getting to make an impact um, for the kingdom of God, helping people get to experience the love of Jesus in variety of ways. And so uh, I know last time you were, or earlier we were talking and she wanted me to mention that the schools are back in session because this video is about a year or so old and they've actually started construction on that new kind of, uh, what do you call that, that? Kind of like, is it a day center or? Um, it'll be shelters for the boys. Okay, it's going to be the boys' shelters. So, either way, with that said, if you guys will just kind of, if you feel comfortable sticking your hands out, we'd love to um, just pray for Andrea and the work that they're doing over there. Uh, Father, I just thank you. Um, I thank you for your faithfulness to us um, as we were just singing that song. And we're grateful that you're faithful to us. And we're grateful that you allow us to be part of your work of bringing the good news of who you are to this world, that we get to help share your love with others. And Lord, I just thank you for the ways that you're equipping and using Andrea and the staff at Brand New there to share your love with people halfway around the world in the Philippines. And we thank you for the fact that you are, you know, it's a new day and it's that you're a God of second chances and you're sharing that, your love with these kids. And I just thank you that they get to experience that. Lord, we lift up Andrea. Um, we ask that you continue to give her strength, give her endurance as she shares your love with those around the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you. And uh, Zach, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> love it. You know, what, what Zach was saying there is... Uh, just thank you for those of you part of our faith family and, and you give to the ministry here and, and you're helping support Andrea and uh, so many others who are throughout the world, you know, in Africa and South America and, and in Europe and, and even um, ministering in, in some, um, you know, areas that are kind of hostile to, to the good news of Jesus. And so um, thank you for that. I know that this is a moment to connect some of those dots, that as uh, you give, your dollar is having an impact all over the world, as well as our own community. And some of the partners that we get to uh, link arms with here, um, just leveraging this campus, you know, with Borland Free Clinic and Tualatin Food Pantry and Divine Threads and Northwest Children's Outreach, you know, all ways in which um, the love of God is felt by helping with just medical needs to women who are in crisis and coming out of trauma to um, kids being clothed um, whose families can't afford it. So thank you so much um, for your giving. And, uh, and that's just an opportunity to see another way where you're having an impact. So thank you for it. We are um, starting off the new year by jumping into a series just for the month of January 
called What We Believe, and we're just thinking, okay, what are some basic foundational things that our spiritual journey is built upon? Saying things like, you know, who, who is God? What, what's he really like? Um, has he revealed himself to us? And what is he saying about himself? Um, who, and what does that mean for us? Who we are? You know, how is our life supposed to look? And what's the impact in our life and through our lives on this earth? Um, and what's God's plan for it? And so we're going to look at some of those uh, topics. Today we're going to look at the Bible, which is one way in which we think, really, it's God's specific revelation of himself, we believe. But if you went to downtown Portland and you're in Pioneer Square and you're asking people, hey, what do you think of the Bible? The typical response you would get in this area is, um, you know, I think there's some good morals that are taught in there, but it's obviously a, a book of um, fantasy. It's mythical. It is uh, not the stuff of history because, you know, it was written so long ago. And so how would you ever know if anything's ever happened? Plus, you know, there's miracles in it. And so it obviously can't be historical. And so today we're going we're gonna to tackle that. And we're going to get an, an overview <clears throat> on is there things that we can link what's written in the Bible to actual history. That it isn't just stories, but it... We're real people, real events in time, and how could we know that? And so we're going to dive into that today. But as we dive into that, I know that in 35 minutes, I'm going to give you a brief flyover of a couple of ideas. Um, but some of you are really interested uh, to going deeper. So I'm going to give some resources to you up here. And, um, and there's another time I'm going to give some resources. And so the best way to do it is just take your phone out and take a picture of that, baby. But... Um, Mere Christianity is kind of a classic book written on um, can a thinking person embrace Jesus? And what, what's the logical thinking that would happen that would not only say the Bible is worth reading and listening to because it's history, but then how do you explain the history? And so Mere Christianity, written by C.S. Lewis, it was published in 1952. It's just a classic. You know, if you, it, it's, a, it's in paperback, it's small, but it's one of those that you're going to read a paragraph and go, what did I just read? And you're going to sit back and it's just like, I need to digest that. And uh, so it's a slow reader, but it is really thoughtful. And so... Um, that, that's a great one. Is the Bible true? Um, Jeffrey Scheller is a, a writer. He um, wrote regularly for U.S. News and World Report. He took his journalistic skills and looked at the Bible from a scholarly perspective and critical examination. So he looked at history. He looked at all the stuff and said, does this... Um, ring true in history based upon all we know about history with ancient historians and so forth and what about jesus himself and he does a deep dive into it does a great job it was published in 1999 that's a great book um jesus and the eyewitnesses in 2006 was published richard bachman wrote it and he uh, just really focuses on the life of jesus and how would we know if the things reported in the bible are actually historical regarding jesus 
And so he does a deep dive into that study, and uh, it's, it's very good, but it's focused on that. The reason for God is probably more of today's mere Christianity. Um, Tim Keller wrote it, published in 2008. Tim Keller, unfortunately, just went to be with the Lord last, um, last year. We lost him to pancreatic cancer. Um, he, he's a pastor. He was pastor in Manhattan, had a, and his ministry had a big impact on, on my life. But great book. Evidence that demands a verdict. That has been around for 50 years, okay? Um, a skeptic in college named Josh McDowell went to write a paper and eventually a book to disprove the, the historical veracity of the Bible, especially Jesus and especially his resurrection. And he did a, dip, a deep dive into historical documents outside the Bible um, and theories to explain the history and as a result, he placed his faith in Jesus Christ and wrote this book. And uh, since then, what's really cool is his son, who is now a professor at Biola University and Talbot Seminary, um, named Sean uh, McDowell, has engaged with his dad to um, rewrite the book and to update it. And so they republished it, first published in 1972, republished in 2017. And so um, that's a great book. And it's just, it just gives you data. I mean, it's, it's just a lot of research. So it's a great book to look at. And then if you're you know, kind of a geek like me, um, Biblical Archaeology Review is a quarterly periodical. It comes out, it's also... Um, uh, there's an e-version of it, but you can subscribe to that. And there are archaeologists, um, secular, uh, Jewish, and some Christian. They're all on digs, uh, mostly in Israel, but um, all over the world, in, in Africa, Egypt, um, Europe. And they are, anything that connects to the Bible, they write in this um, periodical, and it's fascinating to see how um, archaeology and things that are being discovered in our day and age, in modern archaeology, um, which is really new the last few hundred years, um, and many things that were dug up 50 to 100 years ago are now being understood because of technology we have today, and the ability to, for example, there was in Engedi, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, you've probably heard of those, Engedi Desert Area, um, they uncovered through archeological dig, the synagogue from Engedi, where the scribes, the, Ma the Masorites would live, and they would, they would copy scripture, um, just very meticulously. Well, they found scrolls in there that were parched, they were burnt. And so they just didn't do anything with them. And so here, like, I don't know, I think it's over 60 years after they were found, now we have the technology and the software to look into those scrolls and see what was written. And it's actually um, part of the Old Testament that bridges the gap between the Dead Sea Scrolls when the, and what they date back to, and then like the time of the Crusades, when um, we have a bunch of scrolls of the Old Testament. And so these bridge the gap and just show how they were so meticulously copied and what we have today um, really almost perfectly reflects what was originally written. And so really uh, cool stuff. And we'll get into, well, I think it's cool, but you know, I'll let you be a judge. But um, so let's start off. Is can we believe the Bible is historically reliable? 
or is it a collection of myths? And one of the things that is said is obviously it's not history because there's miracles. And I would push back against that reasoning. That's, I don't think that's good reasoning. I think you do, first of all, you establish, can you understand if this is an historical document? And then if you do understand that it's historical, then how do you explain the miracles? So I think that's a separate question that we have to deal with. And so can we know that the Bible that we're reading today is an accurate reflection of what happened in human history, you know, much of which is ancient. And so how can we know? So here's uh, one of the ways we know, and actually I'm gonna use Luke chapter one to touch on it. And um, Luke, Dr. Luke wrote a biography on Jesus, and uh, this is what he said about it as he put it together. Luke chapter one, verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And so he's saying, he doesn't exactly say it there, but he's saying, I'm writing about Jesus and the things that were being done around us during the time. And many people have written about it. And I wanna do one as well just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And so he's saying, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna write an account based on eyewitnesses, all right? Verse three, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Luke, right out of the gate, as he begins his biography on the life of Jesus, wants everybody to know who's reading this that I'm giving you account based on eyewitnesses, people who were there. And so I'm not making it up, but I'm giving you an orderly account so you can have certainty of the historicity of this book. So anybody reading Luke's Luke's book on the life of Jesus um, would know, hey, there are people who are living today that uh, were there and that are mentioned in this account. And so here's what that means. Bible history is affirmed by living witnesses being named. And that might not seem like a big deal to you, but think about this. We did, this is a time there were no printing presses. There were no... Um, iPhones, no smartphones. You weren't able to, uh, you know, hey, go live and let me show you what's happening at this moment. But things that happened were told orally to other people. And just like we would do today, somebody comes and tells you, hey, did you see what happened on, uh, you know, Twalton Sherwood and Boone's Ferry? No, I didn't see. Well, this is what happened. Oh, you're kidding. That's unbelievable. Were you there? Did you see it? Well, no, but so-and-so was there and they saw it and they told me. And so then the more that that happens, there's eyewitnesses and you know who they are. All of a sudden, the veracity, the, the reliability of that story goes up because you're checking, okay, is this a story? Is this a rumor? Is this telephone? You know, that you're just, um, you know, something happened and now it it's, it's, uh, doesn't even resemble what happened. No, you, you, you go for witnesses. And that's what they did. In fact, we know ancient history 
relied upon eyewitnesses or it was not considered history. And one of the, the main reasons we know that is because of the work of um, a man who I would really like to tell you his name, but I don't know if I can pronounce it. And if I can find it, that would be helpful too. Oh, there it is. Thucydides, okay? T-H-U-C-Y-D-I-D-E-S. He was alive from 460 to 400 B.C., he was a historian, one of the greatest historians of ancient history that is looked upon as reliable. Why? Because he established that in order to believe historical accounts, you need to have eyewitnesses of recent events as your sources. And what he did is he wrote, wrote about the Peloponnesian War, which is, um, hello, oh, that was my... My family um, lays odds on, will his phone stay in his pocket? Um, okay, somebody just won. Um, but he, he wrote about the Athenian versus the Spartans and their conflicts and their wars, and he established the, the, the ground rules of historical genre in ancient times. And he said, the validity of historical accounts is determined by focusing on recent events verified by eyewitnesses as sources. And so this, out of the gate, is exactly what Luke is doing. And so his readers would have known, oh, this isn't a story. Luke's telling us real stuff, real events, and he's writing down the names of people who are still alive who can verify it. And so if this was a story, he wouldn't write down the names of the eyewitnesses. He would just say, oh, this person, that person, this person, and that person. But as you go through it, as you go through each of the Gospels, they're, they're naming people. They're naming people for um, sometimes insignificant things that aren't key parts of the stories, but they're naming them because the readers at the time who were living during the time of Jesus when these things happened um, knew that they could, if they're in the area, they could go ask around and say, hey, so-and-so. Jesus supposedly healed his ear. Do you know this family? Yeah, yeah, I do. We talked to him. It happened. Seriously. And they could validate the, um, the information. And so the Gospels were all written during times in which people who saw, experienced, um, heard the teaching, saw the miracles of Jesus um, were alive. And so they could have been squashed by going and saying, hey, are these things true? And by, for these people to say, no, man, that, that person is written about, nobody knows who that is. I mean, that's a ghost. And the rumors could have been shut down if they were rumors. They didn't get shut down because I think they were actual history. Um, let me just tell you, give you a couple examples. On the way to Calvary, where Jesus was carrying the cross, he had been judged to be crucified and, and sentenced to be crucified. He's carrying his cross, he had already been beaten, and um, there comes a point where he can no longer bear the burden of that cross, and he falls and he can't carry it anymore. And so Roman guards just grab somebody and throw him in and say, you carry the cross the rest of the way for Jesus. Well, that could have been the end of the story, except the, the gospels say, that person's name was Simon of Cyrene, and he was the father of Rufus and Alexander. 
And so right there, people who are living in that time now reading about these accounts, and they had heard about these accounts, obviously, um, they're going, okay, there's a family, there's Simon, Cyrene, know where that is. Oh, I may have known that family. Um, hey, I don't know Simon, but I, I know somebody who knows Rufus. And you can start nailing it down. Sometimes these people's names are mentioned in the Bible. You're going, why, are that, why is that person named? It's not just the main character in the story, but it's all these, you know, tertiary people. And um, it's because they're eyewitnesses. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, when, when Jesus was to be arrested and Peter just said, you know, not on my watch and took out a knife and went after the guard um, to arrest Jesus and he went for his head and Peter obviously was not a gifted knife wielder and missed his head, got, got, but got his ear, you know, chopped off part of his ear. And Jesus stopped him and then he healed the guy. And it's like, well, that's, that sounds fanciful. That, that could never have happened. But then they named the guy and his name was Malchus. Then the gospels talk about a, another blind man who was healed alongside the road. It could have been anybody. You could have just said, okay, if it was mythical, there's a blind man healed. No, his, his name was um, Bartimaeus. And then there was the, the women that were at the tomb that was empty the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. And the gospel writers write who was there. And they in their maybe as many as six women. Joanna, who was the household manager of Herod Antipas, who was the governor of Judea. So a well-known person, easy to find. She was there at the empty tomb. And then this maybe is even more evidence of the historicity of that moment, is there's four other women who are named all by the name of Mary. Now, if you're making up a story, I'm not using Mary four times. I'm saying, okay, there's Mary, there's Betty, there's Alice, and there's Lori. You know, I'm, I'm changing the names, but four Marys were there. Uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, who was a follower of Jesus, who was healed by Jesus, um, and, she, and she's dis distinguished because she's called Mary Magdalene, so Mary from Magdala, okay? I'll come back to that in a sec. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, okay, we know her. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Okay, that's a different Mary. Then there's Mary, the wife of Clopas. I have no idea who that is. Well, we do know from other things that Mary, that Clopas is probably Mother Mary's brother. Okay? And so this is Mother Mary's sister-in-law, Mary. All right? And then, thank goodness, Salome was there. You know, <laughs> and, um, who's the mother of James and John. And so, which is also, when you hear of James and John, you hear James and John's sons of Zebedee. And so this is Zebedee's wife, Salome, all right, who's the mom of James and John. So it names them, not to just randomly name people, but it names them because, hey, you, you wanna, was it empty? Here, here's six women who were there that morning, and here's what they saw. And... Um, after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, there are two followers, are people who believed in the Messiah and hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, 
But now it's several days since Jesus had been crucified, and now they're hearing people are seeing him alive, and they're totally confused. They want to believe, they were brokenhearted, and now they're going, what's going on? And Jesus walks with them on the road. And, uh, and that could have been the end of the story. Oh, cool story. No, it actually, it, one of the guy's names was Cleopas. And so he's around. And so these things were written and circulated within the lifetime of these witnesses. And that's how you know you have history. Now, here's an interesting fact. Um, Bible scholars, and not all Bible scholars are believers, okay? Not all Bible scholars are Christian or Jewish. There's some who just love history, and, and the, they look at the Bible as an ancient piece of literature that's amazing and unique, and it is. Um, but all of those, Jewish, Christian, secular, all those Bible scholars who are historians believe on these three things about Jesus. They believed that the tomb was empty. They believed that many people claimed to have seen Jesus, hundreds, maybe thousands of people, after he died. And they believe, they believe that people believe they saw Jesus living. And they believe that his followers did a dramatic about face three days after his death, when forever their lives were changed and they went to their death because they believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Those among most scholars who are people of faith and not people of faith, they all believe those three facts. Then it's a matter of, well, how do you explain them? Um, as Christians, we explain them by, because it happened. Um, people who aren't Christians, who think that those three facts were true, they came up with theories to explain that fit within their worldview to explain away these things. Like, okay, there was a mass hallucinations happening, or there was a conspiracy by the believers of Jesus and they stole the body and it was just, and it was never to be found and they all stuck to their story even though they were all murdered for it. Um, there's a, a theory that Jesus didn't actually die, that he was on the cross and he went through what he went through and everybody saw it and everybody saw him being pronounced dead and, there, and he was put into a tomb. But um, then the, the cool air in the tomb revived him and he jumped up and uh, somehow got all, all the wrapping and, uh, and then moved, you know, gave the stone in front of the door, like, you know, it's just a forearm shiver and walked out and and the guards didn't see him, and, but he was alive and healthy. Um, and so those are different theories that explain what did it mean? How did this happen? How did these historical things happen? So there's uh, Paul, about 15 to 20 years after the resurrection, wrote to a, a, a beginning church in Greece, in Corinth. And so he wrote it or he had it written, he dictated it, had it written, and then there were copies of it now being distributed 15 years after the resurrections, and he said this, after that he appeared, talking about Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, 
most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And so he's saying, hey, if, if you wanna verify the facts here, that there's not just 10 of us, that there's hundreds of us who saw the living Jesus after he rose from the dead, and actually probably thousands, because those are just at one time 500 men. So there's probably thousands of people, women and children, who saw this happen. And so how do you explain it? Well, that um, is a, a question to, to, to deal with, and historians have to deal with. But I deal with it like the most plausible thing that happened is that God did a miracle here, and these things happened. And that's why there was an empty tomb. That's why people's lives were changed. That's why thousands of people saw Jesus after he was crucified and rose from the dead. Um, but all that to say, you don't have to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh to know that he was a real person. He existed. He taught these things. He did these things. All these miracles were believed on and seen by others. And so then it's like, okay, what, how do you explain those away? if you don't believe in Jesus? And then how do you deal with the claim that he would raise, that he did raise, um, and people saw him? And so it's saying the Bible is reliable historically. Is it saying the Bible is the word of God? No, it's not necessarily saying that, but it's saying you can trust in what the Bible is saying, and now what does it mean? I mean, that's, that's for you to understand, and for me to understand, and I think is the point of the Bible. But you just can't say, hey, the Bible is just a bunch of myths and made up stories. Another way we know that is the Bible is history as affirmed by archeological findings. Um, man, there's thousands and thousands of modern archeological findings that point to the validity of the history that is in the Bible and the reliability of the history that's in the Bible. Um, many things in the Bible have not been reported outside of the Bible, all right? And so critics would say, aha, if that really happened, then someplace in ancient history, somebody would be talking about it. And in the last 300 years, thousands of times that's happened. And it's one of the reasons I love archaeology, not that I would ever want to sit in the desert and take a toothbrush and scrub a rock. I mean, that sounds just terribly boring to me. But I'm glad somebody like it. You know, somebody likes doing it because I love reading about what they're finding. Let me just give you, well, first of all, let me put up um, another thing you can take a picture of if you want to. Uh, five years ago, on March 11th, I gave a message on the fifth gospel, the land of Israel, where I just kind of dove into some of the archeological discoveries that are happening there. And not only how does it help us know that these are um, accurate history that's recorded in the Bible, but also how some of these things help us understand the Bible. And um, so if you wanna learn more about that, you can watch that, that message from a few years ago. Okay. I want to just cover a few, um, just a few. I had 20 pages of notes yesterday. Um, it takes me 35 minutes to go through four pages of notes. And so if you, know, if, if you want to stick around this afternoon, I, I got a lot to tell you. But uh, I'm just going to try to skim over a couple 
things. One of, the, one of the accusations, as I've said, about the Bible not being a historical document is um, why do key figures in the Bible not exist outside of the Bible? Why is there no extra biblical findings about these people? Okay, um, a couple of them. Pontius Pilate. He was the person who was overseeing the trial of Jesus and sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion. He was supposedly the governor in, in the area. Well, how come we don't, there should be some if evidence of him being alive, being such a crucial um, figure in Jesus' life and his death and resurrection. Um, King David, maybe one of the most in, influential people in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, the greatest king of the nation of Israel. He was the, the king that not only unified the country, but brought, brought prosperity to the country and victories to the country that established them as a powerful nation. If he's really real, wouldn't we know of him outside of the Bible? And that was a considerable um, critical examination and critique of, of um, the Bible as being questionable as far as its history. Um, Mary Magdalene, at she was at the tomb when it was empty. She was there. She's, she's distinguished because her name's Magdalene, Mary from Magdala. Magdala doesn't exist. We don't know where it is. You think we would have found it. If, if she's from the Galilean area and she's known as Mary of Magdalene, then Magdala should be a place that we know where it is. All right. Uh, that's a few of the critiques. 1961. Caesarea Maritima, which is on the coast of Israel, which is, was a main port during the Roman Empire to, to Israel. Um, in 1961, it was being uncovered. And there was this huge amphitheater that I've sat in many times with many of you as you've gone with us to Israel. And um, they found the commemorative stone on the day that that amphitheater was inaugurated. And on that stone said that um, we are honoring Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. 1961, first time Pontius Pilate is mentioned outside the Bible in history. Really cool. No place else talked about him but now, thanks to modern-day archaeology, we now have, and there's other things that have been found since then referring to Pontius Pilate. King David, 1993. Um, a lot of you remember 1993. You were born 1990. You were alive in 1993. Uh, 1993, they were getting done with an archaeological dig up in northern Israel in the area called, is called Dan. And the park and recreation um, people were coming in making paths, secure paths, so tourists can come in. A bulldozer's going along, scraping the path, and all of a sudden, a stone gets unearthed that starts rolling, and they always, whenever they're doing anything um, regarding the ground in Israel, there's an archaeologist there just to oversee it. I mean, if I had any chunk of Israel... I would start digging because I'm going to find something. I mean, this, this human history has happened in layers underneath this land. Well, that stone had writing on it. It was this, what's called a stela, a stone with inscriptions on it. 
are called stelas, S-T-E-L-E. It was a stela commemorating a victory from um, the Aramean people over Israel. But they didn't say Israel. They said over the house of David. 1993, the first time King David was um, verified outside the Bible. And since then, there's been a couple more archaeological findings that have done the same thing. Um, did I tell you about Mary Magdalene, Hori? Magdala? No. They found it. <laughs> 2009. A, a Spanish priest, Catholic priest, bought land along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he, wants, he wanted to make a, a Catholic retreat center there. And so they start doing some work on the land to prepare for foundations to be built. He starts hitting some rocks. They're all lined up in a row. It's like, oh my gosh, this, there was something that was here. Archaeology comes in, uncovers it. It's the city of Magdala. Uh, last time we went to Israel, some of you uh, with us, we walked those streets. It was uncovered in 2009. In that archaeological dig, they found the foundation stones and the mosaic tiles of a synagogue, and they dated it to the time of Jesus. It's the only synagogue today that you can know that this is where people taught from this synagogue, and Jesus taught in the synagogues around Galilee. Jesus stood right there. It's so cool. Modern archaeology is just, the, the science is phenomenal and it is constantly reaffirming the historicity of the Bible. And let me show you a seal. How about the Old Testament? Um, let me show you, let's, there's a picture that I forgot about. There it is, right there. Okay. That thing's, you know, it's, it's about this big. It's a small little thing. It was found in a dig, an archaeological dig in Jerusalem. Um, what is it? You know, you've seen on TV, like, signet ring, rings, you know, like, you know, more during the Crusades and stuff, they, you know, the king would have uh, an official document that put wax down, and then he'd put his ring in it to make the impression that this has the authority of the king. That is clay that does the same thing. There was, there was a ring or a stamp that was pushed against that clay showing the authority in which this, and it was probably a package of some kind because on the other side of that, you can see where twine was. And so it held something together and then that was the stamp that said who this is from. Who's that's from is it says that it is Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. That goes back 2,700 years to King Ahaz who fought valiantly to defend Judah. And here just, I mean, this, this is, um, this is the, the most, in my mind, the, the, the coolest archeological discovery of the last 10 years. That outside the Bible, we know that King Hezekiah exists who was a key figure in the Bible and he was the son of Ahaz, just like the Bible talked about. So th there's just so many of these things. Um, and they're constantly being unearthed. And things that were found 60 years ago, now we have the technology to read them and study them. And, I, and that, you know, I get confused about what I said, this one compared to last gathering. 
Did I tell you about the tablets in, in Getty that were burnt? Yeah, okay. If you didn't, you just, re, you know, if you don't think I did, rewatch it. Um, <laughs> anyway, so many things. Uh, in, in Biblical Archaeological Review, um, in 2014, a, an archaeologist um, from Purdue University published an article saying, here are 50 people in the Old Testament who now have been verified as real people in history thanks to archaeology. And then two years later, he wrote another article said, oh, by the way, we found three more. It is so fun to see that um, the history in the Bible is just constantly being re-verified as valid. And so that's cool. And I gave you a lot of stuff right there for your head. And so it's neat to know true things that happened in the past, but that's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible, I'm, belief in God is more than historical facts, but it's not less than historical facts. Okay, it, it, um, we are not mindlessly saying I have faith in God because I'm checking my brain out at the door and I'm not really examining history. No, my faith is built on history, okay? It's built on history that's being verified every day. But God wants to change my life. And so Jesus, when he's on the road to Emmaus, he's talking to these two guys who are confused. And, um, and this is what he says, Luke chapter 24. And remember one of them, we got his name, his name's Cleopas. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus in talking to these guys said, you know, this book that you study and you love and you've been anticipating the Messiah, this book is all about me. It's pointing all to me, the history, the sacrifices, the truth about how we, how we are to flourish as you know, human individuals, how we are, are we to be connected to God, how we, what were we created, it all points to this moment in my life and death and resurrection. Now think about it. If we just believed in the historical truths being taught in the Bible and say that they are moral truths and the, these stories uh, give us, uh, show us how we are to live and these principles that even Jesus taught on Sermon of the Mount, it just, th this is a good way to live. And that some people think, yep, that's, that's as far as I go with this. I admit there's a lot of historical truth. I admit there's a lot of good stuff, but it's just all good stuff to kind of how we're supposed to treat people. Consider this. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this. Um, give away your money. But not only do it, do it 
with a joyful, cheerful, generous heart. Like right there, I would just say, I've done that once. You know, it's like, that's how humans, that's how God expects humans to live. Um, okay, I'm, I'll work on it. But that, that's pretty heavy. He says, don't kill. Okay, I'm okay there. I haven't killed anybody. Good, I'm checked. But he said, no, no, no. But don't even look down on anybody else. Don't even be cold to anyone. Or don't treat people indifferently. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I'm thinking, well, gosh, I would like, I would like people to read the Sermon on the Mount and then treat me that way. I, I'd love to be around people like that. But saying, no, this, this is the life God wants you to live. And I'm going, oh. If someone's tormenting you, don't be vengeful. But have a heart that's filled with love and hope for that person. When things go terrible in life, be grateful. Have joy in your heart because you're content. Oh, do you, the guy who wrote Huck Finn, Mark Twain. Mark Twain uh, read the Bible. And I think he got it because after reading stuff like that, he said he had nightmares and his nightmares was he was laying on his back and there was a Bible on his chest and it was crushing him to death. And I think if we just look at the truth of the history and the morality and the ethics of the Bible, it crushes us. It is a heavy burden to live under. And Jesus says, but it's all pointing to me. I lived the Sermon on the Mount. I lived the life that God said humans were made to live. And I earned the blessings and the favor of God. And then I chose to die on a cross and receive the wrath of God for the rebellion against him. So that those who believed in me and what I have done, they could be reconnected to a God who loves them because they are receiving from God the Father everything that God the Son deserves. not just a bunch of facts and information. It is meant to change our hearts and our lives. And so when we go to before God, we, we know that these things that were written, they're reliable. What do they mean? And that's what God wants us to get. What do they mean? And ultimately, it's a matter of bowing down before him and saying, I will follow you. I'll follow you. Let's just bow our, um, our heads. I want to give you a moment to reflect. And uh, for, perhaps it's a, it's a day of just being reaffirmed in the decisions that you've made in the past regarding your faith. 
And may today is a time to just reaffirm that with God and that you will follow him. He is king. You surrender to him. And for others in your spiritual journey, um, maybe you've been on a journey where you've been getting the facts and you've been appreciating the life of Jesus and the things that he taught. But today is a day where you realize, I, I know why. I know why all these things happened. And maybe today is the day you just surrender to him. And you can talk to him. He's God. He hears you. And just let him know where your heart's at. You can say something like, God, I know that um, you are God and Jesus is my hope for being forgiven and united with you. I ask you to forgive me. And I thank you for taking me in as your child who's loved and adored by you. And I ask you to now with like, help me to experience this freedom of being forgiven and not having to change my life in order to make you happy to bless me, but, but to live in the freedom with joy and be just being overwhelmed by what you've done for me and that I get to, I get to follow you. Thank you for this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, in, in your journey, if uh, you, you made that decision today to follow Jesus, or if you know, you're just not there, but you, you know God's got you on this journey and you're learning and you're moving towards him, and um, I just challenge you, don't let that thought and that reality in you just be something you know. But... Engage with others in this journey. And we would, I mean, we are here to do that. We're all on a journey. We're all on a spiritual journey. And we exist to walk alongside people wherever they're at on that journey towards Jesus. And so if, if you want to have coffee with, with somebody here, just to process, think about it, um, we'd love to do that. And so either category, if that's you, on the way out of these doors, there is a center area and it says, um, I wish I remember what it says. It says next steps. And uh, just go there to that counter. There'll be a couple people there and just let them know either I prayed with Bill today and they will give you some information that will continue stimulating your thinking about how you can grow and understanding who God is and what this life with him means. Or let them know, hey, I'm, I'm in process. But I wouldn't mind sitting down and having a cup of coffee and just talking about it. Um, let them know that, and we would love to do that. If, if you're watching online, the same thing is offered to you. You can go to rollinghills.org slash next steps and just let us know where you're at in your journey and how we can help. Um, if you need that information that somebody who just placed their faith in Jesus would have, um, let us know that, and we will, we will send that to you. Or if, or if you want to uh, talk, phone call. Um, if you're in the area, grab a cup of coffee. We'd love to do that too. So let us, let us know. that this is um, you, You're created for this journey. I believe that with all my heart. That's, that's why you're here. Your life has purpose and meaning. And so grab that. Take that seriously. Don't wrestle through it alone. But uh, bring other people along with you in the journey and, um, and that's what a faith family is for.
And so let us know. We're going to uh, continue to sing as we close out this gathering.